This is podcast number 14 in our work to penetrate the mind of Paul. In this podcast, we're going to look at the legal midrash in Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which is the center of a chiastic construction. But before I begin, I really want to preface it with this comment. I think the most important thing for us to remember is that Paul does not mean the law is a curse, nor does he intentionally separate Jews and believing Gentiles. With that thought, we're ready now for the Midrash in verses 11 and 12. We've already seen that Paul has drawn from Scripture in the A-lines of this chiasm in verses 10 and 13 the answer to one question. How have the Gentiles entered into the covenant relationship that God first made with Abraham and his physical descendants, the children of Israel? They believed as Abraham believed. Yeshua was a perfect sacrifice who became a substitute for the penalty of death that results from our sins. So now Paul must answer a second question. Since God has bestowed his spirit on believers in Christ, as evidenced by their performing miracles in Galatia, how do these believers, both Jew and Gentile, appropriate the Holy Spirit to participate in the covenant community and live in a way that pleases God? You know, the Holy Spirit is a gift, but we have to do something to operate it. This question about how to operate the gift of the Holy Spirit is the heart of the chiastic center that we find in the B-lines. And in fact, it's the chiastic center of Paul's entire letter to the Galatians. So, we're going to turn now and carefully consider the B-lines. They are, by the way, Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The B-parallel verses in the chiastic structure of citations will answer our question, how the believers in Yeshua, both Jew and Gentile, please God. The common subject of the chiastic center is living in a way that pleases God. Now, I'm going to read these two verses, and I'll point out when we get to a citation. In verse 11, For it is evident that no one is made righteous in the sight of God by the law that... Now, citing from Habakkuk 2.4, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And then in verse 12, for the law is not out from faith, but, citing from Leviticus 18.5, the one doing them, meaning the commandments, will live by them. The common theme is living in the first citation, we see that living by faith pleases God, and the one living by faith is righteous in God's eyes. In the second citation, living by doing the commandments also pleases God. Note that it is doing the commandments that pleases God, not the law itself or knowing the law. After all, God is the author of the law. So it must be pleasing to him when we walk in the ways of the law. We remember that doing the works of the law refers to performing miracles in Galatia. 
And these are works of righteousness. And now we hear Paul citing Leviticus 18.5 that doing the commandments of the law is pleasing to God. Next, we observe two assertions that are deductions which Paul makes that are not citations from Scripture. First, he claims in verse 11 that no one is made righteous in the sight of God by the law. That's a deduction that he has drawn. It's not in Scripture. Is made righteous in the sight of God by the law. Second, he asserts in another deduction in verse 12 that the law is not out from faith. That's not in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a deduction that he is drawing. So Paul has drawn two deductions, but he has crafted both in negative terms, which is startling by the unusual nature of this negative composition. So let's look at the two deductions again. They're expressed as negatives. No one is made righteous in the sight of God by the law, and the law is not out from faith. Paul has deduced the first assertion by applying the subject of the first verse which is living by faith, which God perceives as righteous, in a reciprocal analogy to the second verse, which is living by doing the commandments, which is the law, both ways of living are pleasing to God. So if God perceives the first way of living by faith is righteous, then God must also perceive the second way of living by doing the commandments as righteous. The implied deduction is this. Living by faith, allows us to do the commandments. Because God perceives living by faith as righteous, and when we live by doing the commandments, we are pleasing God. So the first verse of living can be applied to the second verse on living. But surprisingly, Paul has reversed the implied positive deduction to change the positive to a negative statement, which draws our attention to it. No one is made righteous before God by the law. But wait a minute. Now listen to this, because it's an omission. Paul has omitted the word doing. Rather than no one is righteous before God by doing the law, Paul has declared No one is righteous before God by the law. Paul has used the linguistic device of omission, which is a common ancient technique in the Hebraic artistry of language to startle the listener and offer clues to the deeper meaning. It would have been impossible for Paul to assert that no one is made righteous before God by doing the law, because the one doing the law is righteous in God's eyes. So Paul has drawn a deduction from a reciprocal analogy between verses that explains how to live in a way that pleases God. But he frames the deduction in a negative manner. No one is made righteous in the sight of God by, doing is omitted, the law. Because we are startled by the strange omission of doing the commandments, we ask, What in heaven's name does Paul mean that no one is made righteous by the law? We must now do as the ancient Galatians would have done, which is to ponder Paul's deduction from Scripture. Paul has said no one is made righteous in the sight of God by the law. 
we can see that being made righteous in the sight of God by the law cannot mean doing the commandments or living by them, since Scripture explains that it is those who live by doing the commandments who are righteous in the eyes of God. This is strange and puzzling. You're probably confused at this point, and so would the Galatians have been. After all, God gave the law to his people Israel so they would know his ways of righteousness. But Paul has dismissed made righteous by the law and replaced it with doing the law or living by the law as a way to please God. So what exactly is Paul dismissing? Why does the law fail to make one righteous? To answer this question, we must return to the practical situation that prompted the question. So we will consider the Galatian epistle in its context of the Jewish Christians trying to be made righteous by the law. We have already noted that Gentile believers in Galatia were demonstrating God's spirit by doing miracles. This was a sign that they were pleasing God and righteous in God's eyes. Nevertheless, their brethren, Jewish Christians, were requiring circumcision and knowledge of the law for entrance and participation in God's covenant community. Thus, we conclude that made righteous by the law cannot mean doing the commandments or living by them. Instead, it seems to be merely studying and knowing the law and failing to do the commandments and live by them. Thus, the contradiction of knowing but not doing is not a distinction between faith and works as the way to righteousness and hence salvation, which is unfortunately a traditional Christian understanding of the passage. Instead, it is a dispute between Paul and Jewish believers in Galatia about how to live in a way that pleases God. Do we merely study and know the law? Or do we walk in the ways of the law? And does knowing the law help us walk in the ways of the law? This suggestion that made righteous by the law merely points to knowing the law is reinforced by Paul's later letter to the Romans, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, those who merely study and know the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 13. That is, those who do the commandments and live in them are righteous in God's eyes, regardless of whether they have studied the law and know its commandments. We have now come to the most important question of all. How does one do the commandments and live in them, if not by knowing the law? If the Gentile Christians were demonstrating the presence of God's Spirit by working miracles, they were apparently pleasing to God and were righteous in His eyes, thus doers of the law. How was that happening? Paul now states a second deduction that he forms through this same Midrashic method of reciprocal analogy, which he declares in Galatians 3.12a. In other words, the first part of Galatians 3.12. The law is not out from faith. That is, 
knowing the law is not out from faith, then what is out from faith? From the preceding verses, we learned that it is people who are out from faith, not the law. Those who are sons of Abraham, that is, those who are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now Paul explains that these people out from faith shall live by faith, thus doing and performing the commandments by their faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Yeshua the Messiah, who paid the penalty for the curse of death. The Holy Spirit enables those with faith in Christ to live by that faith and to perform the commandments by faith. Paul will explain in verses following this passage that believers in Christ have the law written on their hearts, not literally, but metaphorically written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. By their love of Christ, they walk in faith. This life of love is the essence of all the law. Thus, in the second deduction, Paul has uncovered new meaning from Scripture that explains an otherwise puzzling situation. What is this second deduction? Paul concludes, the law does not rest on faith. If it did, simply knowing the law, the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, would result in doing the commandments. In contrast, God's supplying the Holy Spirit is the result of faith in Yeshua the Messiah. That same faith in Christ keeps the law by doing it. This is the deeper aspect of Paul's legal reasoning, which he directs primarily to Jewish Christians who were insisting on study of the law by Gentile converts as a way to be righteous in the sight of God. But Paul is also beginning to draw in the Gentile believers as well. They must have been thrilled, and they could continue experiencing the power of spirit by faith. Now what I want to do is I want to draw some conclusions here. First, we will address Paul's two final and breathtaking conclusions to his entire legal argument that began in Galatians 3.6. Then we will turn to our own concluding thoughts. Paul draws two conclusions, both generated by the same proposition that has been translated so that. It's the Greek word hina. Both of these conclusions now are in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Here's the first conclusion. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing? When they believe, then God sees them as righteous. So first they have to believe. Now here, the second conclusion says, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Paul has just demonstrated from the Hebrew Scriptures that Gentile believers who were performing miracles despite their lack of knowing the law and their uncircumcised condition had been accepted by God into his covenant relationship. Then Paul has proven from the Hebrew Scriptures how God has accomplished this act of grace. God has bestowed his promise of the Spirit on all those with faith in his Son through the principle of substitution. The curse of sin causes an unrighteous condition, and the penalty is death for this unrighteous condition. 
And the penalty was falling not only on Gentiles that had received God's instruction in righteousness, the Torah, but also on the Jews who knew the law but failed to obey all his commandments. They were all sinners. They're all sinners. God wants us to do the law. By the principle of substitution, Christ, the righteous one, has paid the penalty of death. So now, all those with faith in him receive the benefit of his substitution death. By their faith in Christ, that's the one in whom they believe, their faith in Christ, they have received God's promise of the Spirit that bestows life. Not only the promise of future eternal life with God, but also, and this is what is so important, and I think a lot of Christians miss it, also a fulfillment of an abundant life now. We can surmise that if Paul was using methods of legal midrash, then perceived tensions in the passage will disappear. Apparent tensions only occur when the interpreter stops at the simple meaning of the words and fills in the gaps with theological explanations. There is no tension if the interpreter understands Paul's method of Hebraic argument and the way in which he uses scriptural citations. Furthermore, we can perceive that what appears to be negative statements about the law in this passage are simply part of Paul's Hebraic reasoning from Scripture. A person should not separate these negative assertions from Paul's argument and turn around and interpret them apart from the rest of the whole Midrashic argument. Moreover, the curse for doing the law and the curse for not doing the law are both simple meanings of the words, which is not what Paul intends. Instead, the curse is the penalty of death for sin that produces a state of unrighteousness. After all, mankind cannot enter into the presence of God in a state of unrighteousness. By citing Deuteronomy 27.26, Paul does not mean to convey God's requirement of perfect obedience as the way to please God. Perfect obedience is a present goal for which we strive by faith in Christ. Its fulfillment is still future. But we live with a goal in front of us as we grow closer and closer into the presence of God. It's called a maturing process. Paul will address the believer's current walk of righteousness by the Spirit in the rest of his letter to the Galatians, which we'll consider in following podcasts. But now I just want to think here that Paul has uncovered deeper aspects of meaning from the Hebrew scriptures by Hebraic methods of legal reasoning. His purpose is to explain the surprising work of God's Holy Spirit among Gentile believers in Christ, which is evidence that God has accepted them, thus fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that he will bless the nations. In this Hebraic argument from scripture, Paul discloses the answers to two questions that Scripture does not explicitly reveal. First, how has God blessed the Gentiles through Abraham? Well, God accepts them by their faith in Yeshua, as God also reckoned righteousness to Abraham because of his faith in God's promise of a son. Yeshua has redeemed from death, which is the curse for not obeying the law, all those who believe in the Messiah. God has accomplished this redemption from death by the principle of substitution sacrifice. 
to those with faith in Christ, God has given them the promise of future eternal life with him because God sees them as righteous when they first believe in God's Son. Paul has also answered a second question. How does a believer in Christ live in a way that pleases God? Now, this is, this is I think, is probably the most important part of the Midrash. And what makes that person righteous in God's eyes? By living a life of faith in Christ, a believer activates God's spirit in his or her heart to obey the commandments of the law. This is a walk of faith in Christ. It is a walk of righteousness. It is a walk of doing the law that can be a present reality for those with faith in Yeshua. An incorrect application of this passage to Israel and to the Jews, which is often negative and condemning, has been the unfortunate result of concluding that Paul intends a simple understanding of the words. However, Paul is using Hebraic legal reasoning to uncover veiled meaning from the Hebrew scriptures to explain an otherwise puzzling situation. He directs his argument to Jewish Christians who were insisting that Gentile converts be circumcised and knowledgeable in the law. Paul reasoned from the Hebrew scriptures that Gentiles enter the covenant relationship by their faith in Yeshua the Messiah, who has become a sacrificial substitute for them that solves the curse of death, not a curse of the law. This covenant relationship results in the promise of future eternal life with God. However, there is more, much more. Paul then continues to argue that God has empowered all believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, to activate the gift of the Holy Spirit in them by activating its power through a walk of faith. In this way, they will do the commandments and live by them by living a life of faith in their Lord Yeshua. Now, this ends Paul's Midrash arguments that are the very center of his letter to the Galatians. But don't stop here. In the following podcast, we will explore the exciting and provocative artistry of Paul's language that will continue leading us to depth of meaning. Again, the literal meaning is not all what Paul intends, which has led to unfortunate and often harmful theological doctrine. So I look forward to having you with me in the next podcast. Shalom.